God is light and love, and both lead to eternal life. You could say all of life is in God. God is in the whistling of the trees and the snowflakes and the kittens and the pollen that stains our cars. But God is also way more. God is in the deep emotional connection you get with when a memory bubbles up. God is in the 60,000 memories or thoughts that we have every day. God is in the connection of the warmth of the sun hitting our face on a day when nothing is due and everything is clean and you can pause for a moment and realize that you aren't alone in this universe. And then something amazing is with you. God is all of that and more. There's an image that I want you to see. You'll need to sit with this for a moment. It's just a diagram of helpful metaphors throughout history on how theology talks about God. The first is theism. This is the most classical view of God and the longest one that we've had. God and the universe are separate. God is up here, we are down here, the two shall never meet because the universe is riddled with sin. So God sends an advocate to rescue us from that sin. And that advocate is Jesus. This is the predominant way of understanding God in the world. We separate God out. We place God beyond the margins of the universe and label God as distant or other. And honestly, this is the most classical view for a reason. Because God really is always more than we can speak about or comprehend. So it does make sense to put God outside the container of the universe. God's transcendence puts God beyond, into an unknowing. And therefore, people see that kind of God as something that could be feared because that God has the power to afflict and to hurt and is beyond us and we don't understand it. But that God also has the power to give love. So down here, we worry about a God above and beyond out there. So we worship we try to appease that God, hoping that that God will send us blessings and not cursings. Tsunamis and cancer and broken relationships, they're all byproducts from an unknowable separate God. But so is financial stability and good marriages and good vacations. God has the ability to curse and bless, and all of this happens from beyond. In this classical view, God is utterly transcendent, distant separate. But God is more than that too. In the 1700s, a new way of thinking emerged in the universe. We know it as pantheism. Instead of God being transcendent, sitting on a throne in heaven, distant and away from us, God is imminent, right here next to us. And we can listen to this God and talk to this God and trust that this God understands us and intimately knows us because this God is bound to the same time and space and world as us. We are literally in this life together. And I think the picture makes this clear. Pantheism sees God as the universe. So there's no remoteness to God. God is everywhere right here. I don't love this view, but there's a lot of people that do, and it has merit. It introduces us to the imminence of God. 
Roughly 150 years later, around the mid-1800s, a more nuanced, more developed thought emerged, though. Panentheism. And I'll be straight with you. I am all about this. Panentheism takes the best of classical theism and the best of pantheism and combines them. It sees God as both transcendent yet simultaneously imminent. God holds all of life, all of our experiences and thoughts, all of our hopes and dreams, but yet God is still beyond. The whole of the cosmos is bound within God, and yet God is still more. God holds us, but still exists beyond us. I love this. The first time I heard about panentheism, things clicked in a way that had never before. I've always had issues with classical theism. I didn't like the construct of a remote God who was only to be feared. It seemed to reject the God of is love motif of 1 John. Pantheism, though, seemed to dismiss the whole notion of otherness and transcendence and omniscience and eternal life of God. Panentheism, though, is the best of both. God is both simultaneously transcendent and imminent, which is a paradox. Our language and thought processes don't allow for something to be both unknowable and intimately understandable. Yet that's what God is. The concept of God is a paradox. God is both unknowable and yet intimately understandable and experienced, transcendent and imminent. And then the last point I'll address quickly from the diagram makes all of this go one step further. This last image is known as process theology or open and relational theology. The idea of God here shows that we are entangled in an infinite web of co-laboring and building alongside God to ultimately bring about God's good future. Not because God needs us, but because God chooses us. In God's great goodness, God chooses to us to build alongside with, towards eternity, because God is love. And the God that is love allows us the freedom to join in the creating process. In an open and relational way, God lets humanity join in the creating process and we move together towards the infinite. I'll stop here. You didn't know you were getting a master's level thesis this morning. I just want you to see this image. It's important. And I want you to know that there's merit to all four of these views. There are pros and significant advantages to each. One is not more right than the other, for they are all in their own ways, correct and incomplete. We cannot fully capture the essence of God, but what we can do is imagine it, draw an image of it, create a metaphor to help explain it, and that's what theology has done over the years. And you can see it gets more nuanced and more developed. And you can see the evolution of consciousness as theology evolves. And I think all of this is just so fascinating. And it is directly connected to the end of 1 John 5. In our scripture lesson today, we're introduced to the phrase eternal life. Everything is moving towards eternity. 
All of our actions and hopes and theology and practices, all of our faith is moving us towards the ultimate end that we know is eternal life. And one of those metaphors that 1 John helps us construct is that God is the holder of all of life. So when we engage with this God in the created order by following the life and teachings of Jesus, we are invited into eternity. 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I need to tell you a secret. There's not one preacher or theologian or person of any kind who knows exactly what eternal life looks like, not academically speaking. We don't really know if there are streets of gold or if there's a mansion or a river or a throne or a tree, but we are given these beautiful images in Scripture and we hold them in our soul. And most of these images come from the Johannine community. We've talked about this each week. The Gospels, or the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation, all emerged from this same church group known as the Johannine community. They identifiably share similar theologies and understandings of God. And a huge gift we are given from this community is the concept of eternal life. As a matter of fact, this phrase, eternal life, is only mentioned 51 times in the Bible. 45 of those are from the New Testament. It's surprising that the Old Testament doesn't really talk much about the afterlife. So out of those 45 New Testament sayings, the Johannine community writes 24 of them. No other New Testament book even gets close to talking about eternal life. This Johannine church truly believed that Christ was coming back in their lifetime and taking them to eternal life so we could all be with God for eternity. And this squarely fits with how 1 John concludes. Now, I may not know exactly what happens when we die, but I do know that I get to do a funeral tomorrow for the husband of a woman in our church, and I will stand before her family as a faithful representation of a faith that preaches the eminence and transcendence of God. And I will say with great compassion to the widow that her husband has gone to be with the Lord. No more sting, no more death, just peace and rest. I believe this because of the theology and traditions like 1 John 5. Look at verse 11. And this is the testimony. God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. I'll end our sermon series here and say, I hope you'll read this little book slowly, intentionally. Wrestle with the ideas of who God is and how you live your life for and towards and alongside that God. I hope you'll see the deep, powerful love they have for one another as a church and their hope in Jesus as their Savior. And I hope you'll know that you're called to work alongside God who is of both light and love too, which means you are to be light and love. And when and as you do this good work for and with God, 
You follow the life of Jesus to accomplish it. And when you do that, you experience and you inherit eternal life.